English 256. Talking about apple picking here in class. You're missing my recommendations if you're listening in. I'm sorry, I'm not going to give them out. For only in-person only in-person people get my apple picking recommendations. So you just have to see on Wednesday or Friday or email me. I should just start dropping like little Easter eggs in the recording and see if people email me about them. See who is listening. Although, of course, as I said, it's only encouraged, not required. Um, in this class, but I hope that you do. Um, I'll give another shout for what we talked about on Friday, which I emailed you guys and said you should definitely listen in. It's a really useful class for thinking through, which is really important to me for thinking through why what we read is important. Like, I never want you to get to a point in this class where you're like, uh, why did we do that? Like, other, you know, you learn it because you learn it. There's something to be said for learning for learning's sake, but I also want you to think like, okay, what do I now have at my disposal to be able to like, look at the stuff that we read differently, or what do I now understand from what we've read? Like, I want this to be a little more actionable than just be like, okay, we read for Monday, we read for Wednesday, we read for Friday. So go back and listen to that Friday one, because it's really, really helpful to think about the stuff that we've learned from King that we can take forward. And actually, that's a really nice way, uh, well, not a segue, because I want to get into a couple other things, but like, a bunch of you on the forum, posts and replies, were all like, this reminds me of King in certain ways, but it also, is different from King in certain ways too, like Matt, Marielle, Jennifer, a bunch of you guys talked through like, this creation story is different in really kind of interesting ways, and I want to get into that. But the first thing is I brought up the syllabus, so for those of you listening in, um, I just wanted to kind of show you where we're going a little bit. It feels like we've been here forever, but we've only been here like three or four weeks. To me, it feels like we have been here forever. It's the craziest feeling in the world right now. It feels like we've been here forever. Maybe because we feel like the, the guillotine is gonna drop any second here and we're just gonna get cast out. But in any case, I wanna kind of give a sense of where we've been and where we're going, right? We've done these two weeks on King. They've provided us with, as I say, on the syllabus, like concepts, right? Big ideas that we can carry forward. Now we're moving into a three-week period where we are reading different types genres, we might call them, but different types, different kinds of Native American literature, particularly early Native American literature, okay? So like pri prior to the 20th century Native American literature. So this week, we're focusing on traditional stories. I'm going to tell you what I mean by that term. Next week, we're reading an autobiography from the 1800s, 1830s, okay? And then the week after that, we're reading some boarding school narratives from the late 19th century, so like 18. So the next three weeks kind of are a unit on their own. It's like King has been kind of a unit on their own. The next three weeks are giving you a bunch of different examples of Native American literature prior to the 20th century. Okay? And then once we get off of those three weeks, we go to contemporary poetry and a contemporary novel. Right? So we're doing some historical stuff. First we did conceptual stuff, first two weeks. Get our feet under us. What even is a Native American? Right? All of those like really foundational ideas. Now we're going into some historical material for the next couple of weeks, okay? And then we'll go into contemporary stuff near the end of the class, okay? Something to keep in the back, back, back recesses of your mind in the midst of all the other things that I know that all of you have to keep on top of is that beyond the forum assignment, of course, the first assignment that you have where you're going to be writing something and you're going to be handing it in to me is the beginning of November long time away, but just want to I want to tuck these things into the back of your head here, okay? Beginning in November, just want to tuck these things into your back of your head, especially in this type of class where 
like there's no big looming exam, right? What happens, at least I, this has been my experience teaching this class and also taking classes like this, is like you just kind of get into the routine of doing what you're doing and then like when anything is an aberration from that routine, you're like, whoa, what? I had, I had another thing to do, right? That's hard to get, um, to get normal with, so keep that in mind, beginning of November. Any questions on any of that, on the syllabus, how it's, how it's rolling, how we're, where we're going? Good? Okay, so I want to take just a minute to talk about traditional stories. What do I mean by that? So, when I say traditional stories, I mean stories that, like, don't exactly, or I mean stories that are associated very, very clearly and very distinctly with what we might call Native American culture. And I mean that in, like, the stereotypical or expected way, okay? So we have three different examples of stories that we're going to read this week. The first one, the one that we read for today, is a creation story from the Diné, which is probably not a word that you know, but you probably do know Navajo. And Navajo and Diné are the same thing. Diné is the word that the Navajo use to talk about themselves. The Navajo understand themselves as Diné, right? But that's, that's what the Diné are. So we read the creation story today. What creation stories do, right? Every different tribe has one, just like, you know, we have a Christian creation story and all those things. All faiths and cultural uh, formats have creation stories. What creation stories do is they provide us with a sense of the beginning of the world, obviously, right? They also give us some sense of like worldviews of the cultures that the stories are shared among, right? That we'll talk about a little bit. Like, what do you value? What's important to you, right? Those things come across in a creation story. But broadly speaking, we might think about creation stories as kind of spiritual or religious documents, okay? Spiritual or religious documents about the creation of the earth. Most of the time, these stories are kind of timeless. That is to say that like, you can't pinpoint when that story starts, like when that story began to be told. Right? The idea is that most of these stories predate colonization. Of course, if you read the footnote from the thing that we read today, you'll note that this actual story, like literally the words on the page of this actual story, is from 1997. Okay, so the really interesting thing about creation stories not just Native American ones, also like Genesis, right? The really interesting thing about creation stories is that they may have like predated written words, right? They may predate colonization. They may, may be from long, 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 long ago, so much so that we really can't date them in an appropriate way. But every time there's a new version of the creation story, it necessarily takes on the trappings of the history in which it's written, right? So this is a creation story that's written in 1997. Of course, by its very nature, it's not going to be some timeless document. Even if Morris really, really tries to make us think about this story, and we're gonna talk about that today, his tone, right? Even if Morris really, really tries to make us think about his story as a timeless document in the way that he writes it, right? It's still influenced by the time in which he's writing. So that's a really important thing to remember about creation stories, that even though they're timeless documents, when they're written down, when they're transcribed, they're heavily mediated by the time in which they're written. They have to be, just like everything else is heavily mediated by the time in which it's written. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. On one level, they purport to be timeless, but on another level, they are of time in a very particular way. This is written in 1997. Of course it has implications for the time in which it's written. Right? Somebody mentioned in the, in the forum I'm just looking. I'm not sure if I wrote it down. 
I'm not sure who wrote it down or who, who mentioned it, but um, oh yeah, it was Kieran in a reply. Okay, so Kieran in a reply to one of your guys' posts said like, it's really interesting to me that in this story we have all of these different examples of the Nilchi Dine, which are the spiritual beings that eventually become the Dine of the Navajo. We have all of these examples of the Nilchi Dine being newcomers, coming to a new place and fucking things up, right? And then being cast out. And what Kieran says is, this really reminds me in an allegorical way of what happens in colonization. Like we might think of the Nilchi Dine as colonizers, right? And so the story is giving us over and over again a model for appropriate behavior when you meet a new group of people, right? You don't, well, in this context, you don't commit adultery, right? That's what, that's the big issue. But like you act, you try to act in harmony with them, right? But this story was written, or this story like had its genesis, had its beginnings prior to colonization. So of course, this story is at once properly not about colonization, but also it is, because it's written in 1997. It's timeless, it's pre-colonization, so of course it can't be about colonization, but also because this version was written in 1997, it has to be about colonization. Does everybody understand that? How creation stories are at once timeless and of their moment. Okay, it's a really important distinction because we don't want to run into this thing where we read this story and we're like, voodoo, mystical, esoteric, exotica, and we like can't deal with the story. Like, if we were to think about this story in a timeless way as purely exotic, as not of a historical moment, we're doing the exact same violence that we would do to native people around not thinking of them as historical people who exist in time, right? So we don't want to do that to the story either. We want to understand that, like, yeah, it's an old story from long ago, but it was also written in 1997, and that matters. So that's the case with all creation stories. Not Again, not just native ones. Like, Genesis is written and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten over time. Like, the King James Bible version of Genesis, which is written in the late 16th or 17th century. Like, of course, how it's written is impacted by the location in which it's written and the history. It's called the King James Bible, for God's sakes. Like, he's like, I need a new Bible because of X, Y, and Z. King James is like, I need a new Bible. He's, he doesn't need a new Bible to make it timeless. He needs a new Bible to make it of his time, right? So these creation stories are old. Okay, so that's the creation story bit. Remember, principally, it's a religious or a spiritual document that's at once timeless and like really historically located. The second thing we're gonna read, the thing we're gonna read on Wednesday, we're gonna read an example from the Haudenosaunee, which are the indigenous peoples of this area. You might hear of them as the Iroquois. Right, but what they call themselves, again, is the Haudenosaunee. We're going to read a confederation story. This is a, not a story about the beginning of the world. This is a story about the beginning of a nation. And what I mean by nation is not a people. Right? This is a, the text we read for today is about the beginning of a people, the Navajo. What I mean by nation is what? Like, what's the difference between a people and a nation? Maybe it's a fine distinction. Yeah. People is like... Um... Like, let's say like Italians is like a people, and like a nation is like um, America. Or Italy. Or Italy, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the distinction here is that a people is like a cultural designation or an ethnic designation. A nation is a political formation, right? Italians is not the same as Italy, right? Americans is not the same as the United States. One is a state, and like one is a people, and one is a nation. They often a lot, like align with one another, but not always. Right? There are diasporic communities, all sorts of things. 
right? There's, there are people with no nation, right? They have a cultural and ethnic identity, but they don't identify with a nation. So what this second story is telling us on Wednesday, or what it's supposed to show us, is the beginnings of a nation, not a people, a nation as a political formation. How do people come together in order to solve their differences in political ways, okay? So whereas the beginning, the creation story, is about religious or spiritual foundations, the confederation story, which all of these different tribes across the Americas have as well, right, is about political beginnings. Okay? Not the beginnings of a people, but the beginnings of something like a nation. So that's what we'll read on Wednesday. And then on Friday, we're reading folk stories from the Cherokee, which is a southeastern tribe that you might be familiar with, big, big tribe, uh, removed to Oklahoma, but some are still in Georgia and in North Carolina as well. So folk stories are stories that you might really readily associate with Native American culture. They're like the talking coyotes, the talking turtles, the talking rabbits, right? The idea here is that these short stories that are often like seen as children's stories give morals or virtues or lessons. They're meant to teach, okay? So the origin story is a religious story. The confederation story is a political story. The folk tales are really what we might call social stories. They're about how you live in a society. Okay? So that's where we're going this week. Traditional stories. Stories that we understand or expect to be native or indigenous, right? Origin stories, confederation stories, and folk tales. Any questions about any of that? That's where we're headed. Good? No? Yeah. Wondering if I was just going to say they're kind of blend together because yeah. I saw a lot of folk aspects in the story that we read about how like humanity basically if you don't evolve and become better as generations go on you're going to become you're going to get kicked out and you're going to yeah. be removed from society and it gives us that like inspiration that our next generation can be and should be better than our own yeah, what you're bringing us to is that these distinctions are more distinctions of emphasis and less distinctions of type. Right? At their core, they're teaching documents. Yeah. They're telling us about morals or virtues or how things were created. But how they go about doing that and what they emphasize is different. Yeah, that's a really good point. Go ahead. No, I was just wondering, um, the people who wrote this down, do they have any idea exactly when these stories started? or? Like you said early Native American literature, I didn't know like how early yeah. um, like you meant. So when we're talking about creation stories, mm -hmm. it's really hard to say, okay. right? Because even though last week we talked quite a bit about how like indigenous groups have written documents, yeah. they don't have written documents in the way that Western cultures do. That is to say like they're archived in a different way. Oftentimes like the knowledge of how to read them is lost or is really narrowly inscribed to certain mm -hmm. people, right? So for origin tales, it's really hard to say like when does it start, right? Yeah. Just like it's hard to say, like, when does the story of Genesis start? Like, we can date a historical antecedent to the Bible, but that doesn't precisely tell us when that story began to be told, right? So it's hard to say for origins. But for confederation stories, it's actually sometimes easier, right? Because some of these confederations happen after colonization, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes, even if they happen before, there actually is an oral record that has been kept up with into the 21st century. So, like, the Haudenosaunee can tell you they have a story about when their confederation starts. It starts in the 12th century. Okay. And they date it to a particular um, cosmological or astrological um, happening. Mm -hmm. Right? So, in the case of confederation stories, often you can date them. Right? 
Not in that very precise Western way that we want it, though, which can kind of like be frustrating for some of us, right? Not in that very precise Western way, but you can date them in certain ways. Folk tales is the same. It's the same. Like you can tell when they start, when they start to be told, and then you can tell when they start to get transcribed. Any questions? Other questions about that traditional story stuff? Cool. So that's where we are. That's where we're headed. Um, let's start talking about this Navajo creation story. The thing that was really kind of notable to me about what you guys all said in your posts was the differences between Morris and King. Right? King tells us that creation story about charm. Right? That's a story, by the way, of descent. You descend from a world into a new world. This is a creation story of emergence. You start from the below and you go up. Those are actually, if you classify the two kind of types of origin stories in native North America, those are the two predominant ones. You either fall or you rise up. That's generally how these stories start, right? Either emergence or descent. You can actually track culture groups to whether they have an emergence story or a descent story. It's kind of interesting. But differences between this text and King. A lot of you guys talked about this. Yeah. King was a lot of like, and like it felt like I don't know, it's like less intimidating. And then like you come to this and you use this like different language that was kind of harder to read and like his overall tone is just like a like, I don't know, I don't know the word, but like more intimidating. Yeah, let's talk about it. I completely agree, right? This is a really important distinction that has profound implications for how we read the text, right? We've talked a lot about King, how his style is super approachable, right? Just like really open to the reader, so much so that like he's directing questions and thoughts and comments to the reader. Morris is not like that at all. It's intimidating. Can we put some finer points on why or how? Like, talk about his tone or about his language use. What does he do to make his reading style, I would agree, a little more intimidating? If not, like, intimidating, like, we get our defenses up, like, at least we're, we know that there's a border between us and him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess how it was, uh, there was a lot of listing and, like, uh, words we don't know, can't even, like, can't even pronounce. Super important. Like, a, a really seemingly superficial thing that actually has massive implications for how we approach the text. Right, the absence of like foreign language words in King makes that approachable. All of the foreign language words in here, yeah, we don't speak DNA, right? So it's very difficult as we're reading to move through those. Yeah. When we read King, it felt like more conversational, yeah. and this one's more like just informational. Yeah, good. So in King, because of that direct address and because of his tone, it's more conversational. Whereas this, it's what do you mean by informational? Say a little bit. Yeah, like that one's kind of enjoyable to read because like it's I don't know you're, it's almost interactive and this yeah. one's like yeah just you're just reading like it's less it's less entertaining when you're reading just like reading facts and like having big notes you know what I mean yeah that's good because they're both stories like I don't want to make that the distinction like these are both stories but they're told in a particular in very very different ways one is engaging you in a particular way the other is like maybe engaging you, but it's engaging you on intellectual terms. I think that's a good way of thinking through what you mean by informing you, right? That you're like reading this, it might be engaging you, but it's not engaging you in, a, in an entertaining way, it's engaging you in an intellectual way. Like you're like, what does this mean? How does this relate? How does this connect? Like Anthony was talking a little bit about like number symbolism. Like all of that stuff is really embedded in the text, but like as non-native readers or as non-DNA readers, we don't really know what to make of it, right? And so like it's just trying to inform. What else about the tone? 
or other differences. Yeah. It's very straightforward compared to King's. So it's almost like more of a this is what happened. Yeah. Versus Kang uses like more implications of and like connects the reader thing, so to speak. This is kind of like straight story. Yeah. Okay. It's a hard story to understand because of the cultural barrier that we have to the material. Right, but it's a straight story. Whereas in King, he's always coming back. This is like a really important narrative and rhetorical strategy that Kim, King uses. He's always coming back to connections between that story and let's say present concerns or personal experiences. Like the story in King doesn't exist on its own, the charm story, right? It doesn't exist on its own. It's doing something for a broader argument that he's making, right? Whereas, yeah, you're right, in the Morris, it exists on its own, right? It's an isolated thing. It's hard to make the connection from this story to a bigger idea. What else, yeah? Well, that, I also felt like in every, within this story, it was like, not chaotic, but it was like in every paragraph, there was like new characters, yeah. event, event, yeah. after like, yeah. there's so much in like, I couldn't even like, like keep up and like process it. Oh my gosh, at a certain point, it's like, uh, okay, we're in a new world and there's a new, like, it's now we're with the sparrows and now it's, the blue god and the white god, and then there's four mountains, and then we go to the next world, and there's another four mountains, and then there's the soil from the seven mountains below, and like all of this stuff kind of like accumulates to the extent that like it's really hard to wrap our heads around even what the story is telling us, right? Mm -hmm. That might be a cultural distance, like we don't have the kind of cultural touchstone to be able to like um, know those things, but I also think it's just a matter of how the story is told. Morris is really not interested in like explaining. Right? He's just interested in telling us the story. Right? Whereas King is interested in explaining to us why it matters. Right? In the Morris, we're kind of left to our own devices to think through the implications and the effects. King tells us the story for some other purpose. Morris is just telling us the story because that's what he wants to get across. I mean, I would also say that like Morris is much more serious Right? King is quite self-effacing. We get a sense of King as an author, right? as opposed to Morris, who recedes entirely into the background. Right? There's no sense of him as a person whatsoever. That's interesting, right? Because the, the charm story doesn't have to be a personal story. It doesn't have to be something that connects to contemporary context. It doesn't have to be something that connects to personal um, experiences, but it is in King's hands. I mean, the, the, the kind of comparison between these two is really instructive for me because what it shows you is that like the author in this particular way matters so much, right? Because you could imagine a context in which the King story, the story of charm, is told in the way that Morris tells his story, right? It's not hard to imagine that. You could definitely imagine a story of the woman who falls from the sky and lands on the back of the turtle in like this really serious, sedate, structured way that Morris writes. There's a million versions of that story actually. Like I could, I could throw a bunch of them on Blackboard. They're, they're written just like the Morris story, but they're about the woman who falls from the sky. Right, so what that shows us is that these authorial strategies, that choices that authors make are really, really, really impactful for what we get from a story. Um, for what the story shows us, right? What it demonstrates to us. Um, 
both of these stories are working with like big philosophical questions. Both of these stories are full of like complexities about the nature of the universe and the nature of relations between different people. And yet the King story wears it very lightly, right? It's casual. And at the same time, it's transparent. He's telling you why it matters. The Mora story does not wear it lightly at all. He almost wears that stuff like armor, right? And like we're trying to penetrate into the story in order to better understand the philosophies behind it. And it's actually really difficult to do so. Um, so what other similarities do they have? Like in terms of not necessarily the style, which are radically distinct, but what about similarities between these two stories? What do they both emphasize? In terms of content. Yeah. As they allow it to be some morality and yeah. not being selfish. So there are certain morals that I think work the same across these two stories. So selflessness, right, would be one of them. What else? Other ideas or morals that come across kind of similar in the two stories. What about something like cooperation or collaboration, right? Like in the story from King, that's the whole deal, right? Is that these, all these different animals come together to help, and that's how the world is created. In the Morris story, how does cooperation or collaboration work? No, no worries. Take a right, and it's right on your right. Okay. Right in the hallway. Yeah. Um, how does cooperation or collaboration work in the Morris? It's like they collaborate and cooperate, but then that's a matter of introduction, not like a matter of continuation. So they collaborate and they build trust in each other, but then that trust is always broken. Yeah. So versus with King, it's an ongoing thing. Like you have to renew your collaboration, you have to renew your trust to be like working. Cool. So yeah, I like that. So what the kind of emergence from one world to the next shows us is this kind of recursive nature, right? That like you try to unify, you try to collaborate, and then that breaks down. And we'll talk about how that breaks down and why it's important. But it breaks down, and then you've got to try again. And then you have to try again. And then you have to try again. And when we get to the fifth world, eventually we do have something like collaboration or cooperation, right? But it has to recur over and over and over and over. So there are moments in the Morris where that cooperation and that collaboration breaks down, whereas in the King, there aren't moments where it breaks down. You kind of mentioned this in your post, right? Like, I don't, it's a, it was a small thing, Austin, that you mentioned in your post, but it was like basically that some of the ideals or values that you get out of the Morris seem kind of Western, right? Because of the way that like they are moving apart from one another, because of the way that there are conflicts, because of the way things are breaking apart, or even the environmental ethics in some of this story seem kind of Western on the surface, right? Um, or maybe I'm misreading, but, but I, I, I perceive in your post that like in there are certain ways you're saying like this kind of reminds me more of a Western concept than something we would associate with native culture. I don't know, maybe it wasn't you. Um, I, I think with the wasn't problems it. I did or like today. Yeah, yeah, so like the idea here is that what the DNA story shows us is that this is a process coming to this idea of cooperation or collaboration or communal experience or engagement, right? It's not just this thing that happens and then it's done, but it's actually a process. And like you're going to fall back uh, and you have to continue to strive, right? So that's a similarity, but they get to that idea through different paths. Right? Other morals or thoughts that connect the two? 
And selflessness is an interesting one. Collaboration, cooperation is an interesting one. Any others come to mind? I think one could be like bettering yourself before you can yeah. work and better like the world. You make yourself a better person and then inherently the world becomes better. Oh, can you talk about how that works in the Morris? I like that idea. Like where do you see that in the in the DNA story? So in Morris, they when they the um, the kids are born. Yeah. And then the kids are taken away because the, the gods and the spirits see the good in humanity. Right. But then you have to have someone like to instill that in you. Yeah. Yeah. So they're bettering the kids and then they're uniting them so that they can grow and develop versus just almost seeing humanity as a lost cause. Yeah, right, right, right. Okay, cool. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me, right? And that's like embedded in both of these stories, but again, in very different ways, right? The similarity is at the level of ethic or moral, but how we get to that similarity is very different. Not, again, just at the level of tone or language, which we've talked through, but also at the level of content. Um, cool, any other thoughts about differences or similarities? It's a really striking comparison. It's so cool that most of you brought this up in your post because it's really, really important. These two stories, at a very base level, they're talking about the same thing, and even many of the like philosophical or moral imperatives that come across in the stories are the same. But they couldn't be more different in how they're told. Right? They could not be more different in how they're told. And that has massive implications for how we experience them. Right? I'll venture to guess that of the like 27 people in this class, 23 to 25 liked reading The King more. Right? So it sounds like you certainly did. Right? The king was more entertaining. Right? You felt more engaged with it. Those are authorial choices. Right? Maybe Morris doesn't want you to feel entertained. Maybe he does want you to feel informed right? or try to, try, trying to inform you. Maybe he wants you to feel that severity in his tone. Right? Somebody in the post, I think it was Brendan, mentioned that like, this has a kind of like Ten, Commandment, Ten, Ten Commandments vibe. Right? There, is a little bit of humor in a certain couple of moments. I think you brought that up in your post, but there's not, not nearly as much as in The King, right? Um, and maybe that's the intention, is to get across to you that this is like a really spiritual and sacred story. It's not like some kind of casual thing to take lightly, right? It holds up barriers to entry and to comprehension with the, with the native language, with all of the kind of like accounting of the list of gods and everything like that too. Okay, so similarities and differences, we've gone through that, we've gone through what traditional stories mean. How about we dig a little bit more deeply into this story itself? So, um, what's the pattern here? We start in the first world, something happens, and then we go to the second world. Something happens, and then we go to the third. Something happens, and then we go to the fourth. And then it, things kind of change in the fourth. But when we start in the first, third, second, and third, what's the pattern? What, what happens? Yeah. Yeah, and that mistake is what? Adultery. Adultery, always. The the Nucci Dine men are always sleeping with somebody else's wife. Right? That's a, that's what happens over and over and over again. They can't help themselves. Those randy bastards. They can't help themselves, right? Embedded in this sin, right? It could have been any sin. It could have been murder. Right? It could have been theft. It could have been anything. Why adultery? Right? 
embedded in the sin of adultery and the punishment for adultery is one of the kind of really foundational morals or ethics that this story wants to talk to us about. Why adultery? What is adultery? Like, yeah, go ahead. Sleeping with someone else's wife. Yeah, so you're married to someone and you, well, it's, you don't have to be married, but in the context of this story, you're married to someone and you sleep with someone else who is married to someone else. Okay? That's adultery. Why would that be such an important thing for the novel? You kind of know this, because we talked about this in the other class, right? So, so feel free to, to chime in. But why is that so important for the novel? Yeah. Maybe because marriage is so sacred, considered so sacred. Yeah, and in this, it's really interesting to note, as a small aside, that um, marriage in this text is really a man and a woman. And like those origin stories, those ideas, have massive implications even into the present day. It wasn't until very, very recently that the Navajo recognized same-sex marriage, right? And a lot of that can be traced to their origin stories. But in any case, yes, the idea here is that marriage is a sacred bond, right, between a man and a woman. And if you step out of that relationship, if you cheat, if you commit adultery, you're breaking that bond. Why do we, like, what's the purpose or the point of marriage? Another way of saying this is like, what's the purpose of, or the point of like, sex? <laughs> Feels great. What's the, but what's the actual like biological imperative behind sex? What does it do? Recreate. Yeah. It literally is the thing we do to preserve the species, right? So if a man and a woman come together, they get married, the intention is that they create more Navajo, they create more DNA. If you commit adultery, what are you doing then? You're not just hurting your wife, right? What are you hurting? Yeah, in what sense? So it's not, they're not really pure Navajo, so someone else comes in and now if you end up having a child, it's not, it's not like native to yeah. the people. Yeah. It almost feels like the child is an outsider. Even though it's... Right. If you move outside of your tribe, right? If you um, have relations with someone outside of your tribe, what you are doing is you are, like we could say like polluting the bloodline or something, but just more generally speaking, what you are doing is you are not preserving and extending the Navajo, right? You are not making sure that that society flourishes, right? That's why adultery is the sin for the Navajo, right? Because for the Navajo in this context, what's so important is preserving their culture and their society. And so when you step outside of that, that's a massive red flag. It's a massive sin. It's a prohibition, so much so that you are banished from this world. Right? And so what we get to, the thing that we kind of understand from this idea of adultery being the sin among all other sins. It is the most important thing not to do. What we begin to understand is that for the Navajo, the kind of most important value or ethic is something like balance, okay? Between men and women, right? In marriage, but also in other relations as well, right? The Navajo have a term for this, it's called hojo. It's H-O-Z-H-O. -H -O. Basically means balance, right? What the Navajo privilege among all other kind of moral imperatives is that we maintain balance. And so when you sleep with somebody else's wife, you are pushing everything out of balance, okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. That's kind of that foundational moral or ethic that we get 
from adultery being the catalyzing sin that moves us through the world. Okay? Can anybody remember from the in in the perspective of like sex or gender, there's a character in this story that kind of epitomizes balance. Anybody remember? It's actually a small little point, but it's important. There's a type of character in this story that epitomizes balance between the genders. Yeah. Oh wait, it's not the it's not the twins, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first pair of twins that are born are called Nadle. Okay, N-A-D-L-E-E-H. Okay. These Nadle have the spirit of man and woman inside of them. Right? They are the physical manifestation of that idea of balance. Okay. The Nadle for the Navajo, for the DNA, are incredibly important because of that reason, right? They are the first twins born, right? The first ones are the Nadle, the physical manifestation of balance. They have man and woman inside of them. Now, they do not create physically, biologically, they do not create more people, right? They don't ever, like, get married and have, ch and have kids. But they do do something that's really important for Navajo culture in preserving and maintaining it. Anybody remember what they do? Again, it's like a small little line, but it's crucial. And this is why I'm bringing it up. The Nadle are actually the, the, the Navajo who create basketry and who create pottery. Okay, and I wouldn't expect any of you to know this, but basketry and pottery are two really, really, really essential, important cultural practices among the Navajo. Right? And so even though the Nadle do not continue or maintain Navajo life by creating more Navajo people, what they do is they create pottery and basketry, which sustain Navajo life and society through this cultural or traditional practice. Right? So this idea of balance that comes through, through the sin of adultery and its punishment and banishment and the repetition of that idea, this idea of balance that comes through is actually finds its kind of most important manifestation in the figure of the Nadle. Right? This one being that has inside of it the spirit of men and the spirit of women. Okay? This idea of unity also comes through in the fourth world when men and women break apart. Can anybody talk me through that scene? Does anybody remember that? Men and women are getting along okay with the Pueblo people, right? They're, it's before the Pueblo, they meet the Pueblo people, I believe. No, it's right after. They're, men and women are getting along okay. Something happens. Women, one of the women says something kind of terrible to one of the men, right? In a footnote, the implication is that, like, one of the women questions the manhood of one of the men. What happens to them? Yeah. Um, the man gathers all the other men up and says, like, they don't need a woman and decide to move away. Yeah, they cross the river and they move away. Mm -hmm. And initially, the women do really well, right? Because the corn has already been planted for the season. They have a massive harvest, the men don't do well at all because there's no supplies, right? But then something changes in the later years. What happens? The roles reverse, right? Men start to plant more, they have more supplies, they are stronger, and the women actually begin to starve, right? The women are desirous of the men in a couple of different ways. Right? The women need the men in order to eat, in order to sustain themselves, but they also need the, the men to fulfill their sexual desires too. 
right? So in the absence of men, what do the women do? They masturbate with stones and cacti. I remember that part? Yikes. They masturbate with stones and cacti. And as a result of them masturbating with stones and cacti, you're like, it's too early in the day. It's noon, and it's still too early in the day to talk about this. What happens? What are the offspring of the masturbation with stones and cacti? Do I remember? Yeah. So was it the sea monsters? Yeah, they're monsters, right? Okay, so we have men and women. We already know that the Navajo privilege balance, right, between men and women, and that that bond is reflective of the privilege and balance that they have in society, right? When men and women break apart, okay, what happens? That balance isn't kept. Yeah, that balance is broken entirely. And as a result of that balance being broken entirely, right, monsters are created, literally, in the story. But the idea here that we take from the story is that, like, when you break that balance between men and women, not just in adultery, but also in, like, breaking apart a union, breaking apart a marriage, taking men and women away from one another, when you break apart that balance, when you break apart that unity, bad things happen, right? The bad things happen is manifested as the monster, but more generally, we could say that like the bad thing that's happening is that you're threatening the society, right? Just like the monsters are threatening the society, you are threatening the society when you break apart that balanced relationship. So eventually, they resolve to come back together, right? And they get back together, and everything is a little bit better. They're in the fourth world, but then they have a disagreement between themselves and the pueblos. They that once they're in the fifth world, they have a disagreement between themselves and the Pueblos and they break apart, right? But that last breaking apart is not a conflict, right? Nobody sleeps with somebody else's wife. When they're in the fifth world with the Kasanis, with the Pueblos, they resolve to break apart because they have a conflict, but it's not a conflict that is um, catalyzed, it's not a conflict that's started by adultery, right? So they break apart and the Navajos have their own place, they have their own homeland. And I want to bring you to the last line of this story, which is so critical for our understanding of it. So it's on 43 if you have it or if you're listening along. It's literally the last line, okay? Um, it is said that as so long as Diné, as the Diné, remain within this boundary, this homeland, we will have the blessings and protection of the holy people. So long as we remain within these boundaries, we will be living in the manner that the holy people prescribed for us. Why is that so important? Let's, again, circle all the way back to the beginning of class, where I talked about how origin stories are at once timeless, but also of their historical moment. Okay? This is a story that's written at the end of the 20th century. We already know from what we've talked about with King that the 20th century and the 19th century for Native America has been defined by what, in many respects? It's been defined by, like, territorial loss, right? It's been defined by removal, right? We know that Native people are really um, centrally, what's centrally important to them is their land and their homeland, okay? Talk to me about the implication and importance of this line relative to that, that the history of Native people in the United States has been about taking them away from their land. I'll read it again. It is said that so long as Diné remain within this boundary, within their homeland, we will have the blessings and protection of the holy people. So long as we remain within these boundaries, we will be living in the manner that the holy people prescribed for us. Why is that such an important way to end this text? Especially given what we know about what happens to Native people in the 19th and 20th century. 
What's being said is that we have to stay here. Why do we have to stay here? Because this is basically where we come from. This is our, like, the root of who we are. So by moving away, we're essentially cutting ties to the people that we are. We derive our identity from this land. So moving away is a big, big, big problem in a way that, like, moving away in a Western context is not. Yeah, go ahead. It's like adding to what he said, like, what they're accustomed to, like, they don't really want change. Right, especially in this regard, right? The idea that you would move away is really a, not just a kind of, like, terrible idea because you have a particular sense of home. It's also a terrible idea because your location in this place is mandated by your sacred stories. Okay. Your location in this place is mandated by your sacred story, so much so that if you leave this place, you will no longer have the blessing and protection of your gods. Okay? If you leave this place, the Navajo homeland, you will no longer have the blessing and protection of your gods. That's so very different, let's say, than like a Christian context. Right? Christianity has like important holy sites, and we locate many of the origins of Christianity in like the Middle East, right? But, like, there isn't one place that you have to be in order to be a Christian, right? Like, the things that happened in Genesis, you can't locate them on a map, right? Like, it's the Garden of Eden. It's not like the confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates. It's, like, not a real place that you can point to on a map. I'm not saying anything controversial. Like, the Garden of Eden is not a real place that you can point to on a map. Whereas the fifth world where everything starts, where man and woman begin. It's literally, you can point to it on a map. It's the Navajo Nation now. It's in, south, it's in the southwestern United States. It's bounded by four mountains that actually exist on the landscape. Right, so that's a profoundly different way of thinking about the importance of land and its relation to your faith. You can't be a faithful Navajo, this story is telling us, without staying in that place. What's the impact of that on, like, processes of territorial dispossession. Why would it be so important for the Navajo to resist territorial dispossession or removal in this context? It's like the same thing as moving away. So if someone comes in and takes your land, then it's no longer your sacred land, so to speak. So they lose that aspect and control of the high, from the higher ups. Yeah in their society. Removal is not just like a political concern. It's not just a physical concern. It's not just an inconvenience or a violence, right? Removal is actually a yeah, spiritual concern. Like to be taken from your land is to take away your sacred identity, right? The idea being here just to kind of connect it to something that's a little more familiar to us is like, or potentially more familiar to us is like, if I told you right now that you couldn't live in New York anymore, you had to live in Russia, you could still be a Christian, right? The practice of your faith at a kind of abstract level would not change. You would not feel as a result of that move that you no longer had the blessing of the Christian God, right? But for the Navajo, that's exactly what this idea is coming from. That's the idea that's coming across, is that if you move off this land, you no longer have the blessing of our gods. That puts removal and dispossession in a whole new light. Does that make sense? huge, big, big, big idea to end with. And that's all the time we have, so thanks. I'll see you next week, although, um, yeah, I'll stop this. Um,